to John chapter 8, and we will be looking at verses 31 to 47 this morning. And in your books, this is lesson number 91, the True Emancipation Proclamation, part 1. All right, with that introduction, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father God, we do pray that you would bless this hour of study in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way in each of our hearts, whether it's convicting us or edifying us or whatever we might need. I pray that you would sanctify us through thy word because thy word is truth and it alone emancipates us. It alone sets us free. And the one who is set free by the truth is free indeed. Lord, now we just... um, Again, ask your blessings on this time, and uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. For the next two lessons, we are going to be looking at the remaining section of the Lord Jesus Christ's Light of the World Sermon, and that section is found in verses 31 to 58. And, of course, we will look at verse 59, which kind of wraps up the effect of this dialogue sermon on the Pharisees to whom Jesus is speaking. Now, we have entitled this next two-part study The True Emancipation Proclamation, meaning it is the true declaration of freedom. Whether mankind admits it or not, as we're going to see by the response of the Jews in this passage, the religious leaders, if you look at verse 33, whether mankind admits it or not, and they will say, along with those religious leaders, we have never been in bondage to any man, yet the fact is man is in bondage because he is enslaved by sin and all the consequences of not only his sin, but of living in a sin-cursed world. All of the philosophies of life, as well as all of the man-made religions that have developed over the time of human existence, still do not free man from his bondage to sin. And its consequences of guilt and shame, pain, sorrow and affliction, destruction, depression, brokenness, death, and, of course, ultimate judgment. Man's various ways of attempting to try to liberate himself from the God-shaped vacuum which is inside of him, you know, whether it's by trying to uh, talk himself into saying that everything is relative, that there are no absolutes of right and wrong, whether it's uh, saying that, well, the body is just flesh and bones and returns to the dust, and so I can do whatever I want with the body, it's the spirit of man that counts, or whether it's by searing his conscience or by making himself believe that there really is no final judgment, that hell is just a myth, or trying to convince himself that we are all here just by pure coincidence, you know, chance plus billions and billions of years equals life. Whatever it is, you know, whatever he, however he tries to convince himself that, um, that he is free to liberate himself, yet that emptiness within him, that void, that God-shaped vacuum still exists, doesn't it? And the darkness He's still in darkness. And there is still about the unsaved man a a thirst for something more. He's in bondage to his lusts. And and he has the polluted feeling of his own soul and all the ugliness of, of his thoughts. All these things don't work to free him because lies and falsehoods enslave man. Only truth sets him free. Only truth can set him free. Now, in the verses we're going to be looking at today, which are verses 31 to 47, the Lord Jesus reveals truth that only the light of the world could reveal to uncover the hidden things of darkness inside men's hearts. He exposed the depravity and the hypocrisy and the pride and the deceitfulness of those to whom he spoke. And in this situation, is going to be the religious leaders of his day. And his words, we will find, his words to them are just as true 
in depicting human nature and the thoughts and the prejudices and the pride of the carnal mind today as they were back then because truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who is the truth? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that it says in Scripture, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Truth is always the same. It doesn't change. Just like the God who speaks it, truth is immutable. It is unchangeable. So the main truths the Lord Jesus presented in verses 31 to 47 are as applicable to us today as they were to his first listeners some 2,000 years ago. That's why the Word of God is a living book. It was just as applicable 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago and as it is today, isn't it? So uh, let's read it. Let's read our first section for today. We're going to be looking at three truths. We're going to look at true freedom, true father, and true faith. And we'll begin by looking at true freedom. And I've also called that emancipation from enslaving sin. And for this, I'll read verses 31 to 41a. If you'll look along with me, starting at verse 31. It says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him. Now who is they? Look back at verse 31. It refers back to those Jews which believed on him. They answered him, We be... Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily. And what does verily, verily mean? Of a truth, of a truth. He says that three times in, in, in this next section, or in the rest of the sermon. Verily, verily. So in other words, remember, seven times he says the word truth. So if you add of a truth, of a truth, add another six times. And then the word indeed means of a truth. So this section is full of truth. The first section was full of light. Now this next section of the sermon is full of truth. But after all, truth equals light. Light equals truth, right? But it's just interesting how many times he said truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, or of a truth. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me. Now who is that referring to? The they, which refers back to those Jews which believed on him. Remember all this, okay? He says, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, doesn't say seed this time, he says children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now, second time he tells them this, ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the what? Truth, which I have heard of God. Before he he said he had seen with his father, now he says, which I have heard of God. Ye seek to kill me. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, Whoops, I read too far. I was supposed to stop there. I got carried away. (laughs) All right, after hearing the large crowd, remember now this is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, there's a huge crowd. They're all standing there in the court of the women. Well, after the large crowd heard um, the Lord Jesus make his bold and timely proclamation of John 8:12, when he had said, I am the light of the world, and then he had given his invitation to follow him in order to escape darkness. And after also hearing the arguments of his greatest critics, the Pharisees, and seeing those Pharisees grow angrier and angrier at the Lord's calm, authoritative, and powerful responses to them, 
We learned last week in verse 30, if you look back at verse 30, that many in that crowd, and this was the good news, wasn't it? We were so happy for them. Many in the crowd believed on him. Well, after all, their choices were that he was either a, an outright liar or he was a lunatic. Sure doesn't sound like a lunatic at all, does he? Or he had to be who he claimed to be. Remember when they said, who art thou? Uh, the Pharisees asked him that question, who art thou? And he said, you know, I'm the same that I've been telling you from the beginning that I am. So many, obviously here, decided that this man clearly was neither a liar nor a lunatic. Therefore, he had to be who he was claiming to be. He had to be Lord. Now, when we get to verse 31, which started our lesson today, we find that it says there were some of the Jews who also realized that he was speaking the truth and was who he claimed to be because we read that the Apostle John said, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now, the term those Jews generally refers to who? Not the common people, but the religious rulers. Go ahead and look at verse 40, 48. It says the Jews again. He's having this whole conversation now with the Jews. Uh, it says the Jews in 48. It says the Jews in verse 52. It says the Jews in, in verse 57. And back up to verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him. So we ask, did some of the religious rulers, the Pharisees, to whom Jesus had been directly speaking, Back in our verses last week, verses 13 to 29, he was speaking to a group of Pharisees. Did some of those Pharisees actually put their faith in Jesus as all he claimed to be? And if that's true, we say, ah, that's great. That's wonderful. We're glad they finally saw the light. But then a problem very quickly arises, doesn't it, as we continue to look at their dialogue with the Lord. In verse 33, we read, they answered him, and as I already pointed out, that they refers back to those Jews which believed on him. And then as we continue to look at their conversation with, with Jesus, we find that they disbelieve his words. Uh, they accuse him of having been born of fornication. They, in verse 48, which is next time's lesson, but they actually call him a Samaritan, which is definitely, in their minds, was definitely a derogatory term. And then, look at verses 48 and 52, which we'll get to next time. We don't have class next week, you know, we have a break. But the week after, uh, they're going to say that he has a devil. Now, does that sound like believers? doesn't to me. And then, if you look at verse 59, they actually um, pick up stones to cast at him, to put him to death. So it doesn't take us very long to seriously question their belief in him. In fact, their words, followed at the end by their actions of picking up stones, <laughs> demonstrate the truth of the Lord's own next words when he says to them that it is those who continue in his words, who prove they are indeed his disciples. You know, even more than their words that prove they're not believers are the Lord's words to them which prove that they're not believers. For example, look at when he says, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. He's obviously not talking to true believers when he says, ye do that which ye have seen of your father. If ye were Abraham's children, ye would have done the works of Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. If you were of God, you would love me. Why do you not understand my speech? So we conclude that they were not truly believers. Uh, you see, there's a difference. And you don't see this in the English. But in the original Greek, you would see this. There's a difference in the many who believed on him from the crowd in verse 30, and those Jews who believed on him in verse 31. The first group, and I'm not going to get into all the Greek because it's in your books and you can read about it for those of you who want to be Greek scholars, <laughs> but the, uh, the many, the Greek that is used for the many that believed on him tells us it was genuine continuing faith. They actually put their sincere trusting belief in him. In fact, the words that are used for believed on him in verse 30 are only find, found two other places in the New Testament. And those two places are when it speaks of the faith of a small child. 
It was sincere, honest, heartfelt, childlike faith. Whereas the Greek, which is used for the, um, the belief of the Jews in verse 31, definitely indicates a, an inferior type of faith. It actually means that they believed him rather than that they believed in him. And, you know, even the demons believe him. They know what he speaks is truth. They know who he is even. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that they've surrendered to him. What these Jews had was a glimpse of the light, and they realized it was the light. But, you know, a lot of people can have a moment of truth. A lot of people can come to church and hear the gospel and say, yes, that's true. I see the light. That is true. But if they only have a moment of truth and they don't act on it, if they don't move that head knowledge of the truth to their heart, those 18 inches, they, they go away maybe with even another layer of searing on, the, on their conscience, on their heart. So this is what happened to, the, to these Jews. They, they, under, they realized in their heart of hearts that he was speaking the truth, but they did not commit themselves to him. And so that's the difference, and that's why he knew how important that it was that they hear truth and know, uh, you know, that's why they needed to, to hear truth and not something that would tickle their ears now. That's why it's so important that we all hear truth. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And I think he not only said that for those Jews, but I think he said that also for the benefit of the crowd and those who truly had put faith in him so that they would continue to learn of him and go from the salvation experience to the discipleship experience. But to the Jews, he's talking about, really, the salvation experience. So when we read the word disciples here, it can mean both. So understand, you know, he's talking to one group directly, but he's also knowing the other group, and his own true disciples are hearing all of this. Now, in these two verses, verses um, 31 and 32, what did the Lord say is the indicator of a true disciple? What did he say is the indicator? A true follower of Christ continues in the word, right? In his word. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. It's not that continuance in the word is the condition for salvation, because that would make salvation by works. In other words, if I have to keep on continuing in the word in order to be saved, that would make it works. But it is that the continuance in the word, and this is the word, and in fellowship with the word, the living word, Jesus Christ, continuance in the word is the fruit of a true disciple. It's the evidence, it's the proof that one's salvation is genuine. Remember, Jesus had many disciples at one point in time, didn't he? But after he gave to them that bread of life sermon, back in John chapter 6, many of his one-time disciples went back and walked no more with him. They did not continue in his word. They didn't like what he said. So they, they walked no more with him. They did not like what was the truth that was revealed in that sermon. So they didn't continue in the word. They gave evidence of their true heart condition, didn't they? Just as Judas is eventually going to do. You know, we sometimes wonder about those people who make professions of faith. And they look so good at first, you know, and they come to church for a while. And then they sort of just fade away. They disappear, and we find out that they're not only not in our church, but they're not in any other church either. They're not interested in the Bible. They're not interested in the things of God. John tells us the solution to this problem when we all scratch our head and say, well, what happened? First John 2.19 says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, what? They would have continued with us. Now, there's three words that I want us to look at in the Lord's uh, words of, of verse 31. 
First of all is the word continue. That word in the Greek is the same word which is translated as abideth in John 15, 5, where Jesus said, here's another one of his I am statements, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth, same word, is continueth. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. The word abideth carries with it the idea of dwelling. He that dwelleth with me, in me, and I in him. A real believer, in other words, is going to be the one who will continue abiding in Christ and in the word. The word is the believer's dwelling place. I really like that. That's our, this is our dwelling place. This, you know what? This is our home away from home. Our home isn't here. Our home is in heaven. But in the meantime, this is our home. You know what home brings to you, your mind? Home brings to my mind peace and comfort and where I can just really relax and, and get refreshed. That's what this book does. This is our home away from home. This is our dwelling place. A true believer <clears throat> dwells in the word, and he wants the word of God to dwell in him. Let the word of Christ, what? Dwell in you richly in all wisdom. He may have periods of, of time, of course, when he slumps or he stumbles or he slides backwards, but the overall path of his life, the overall direction of his life is going to show that he continued faithful to the Lord. He will desire to obey the word. And if you're going to obey the word, part of obeying the word is what we're doing here. Studying the word, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the truth. So he's going to be reading the word and he's going to be studying the word. There's going to be a steady perseverance to the end. Now, so that's the word continue. Then there's the word indeed, which I've already talked about. Basically, it's another word for in truth or truly. Then is he my disciple in truth, truly. It also in the Greek has the meaning of not hidden or not concealed, then is he not a hidden disciple or a concealed disciple? You know, true believers, true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are obvious believers. It's obvious. You don't have to wonder about them. You don't have to just hope that they're saved. And when you stand at their gra graveside, you know, really wonder where they might be. If a person is genuinely a disciple of Christ, a follower, a learner of Christ, it's going to be conspicuous in his life. And people around him won't have to ask about his salvation. You know, if somebody has to ask about your salvation, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Well, the third word is when he says, if you continue in my word, to the true disciple of Jesus Christ, who is the focus? Jesus Christ and his word. Remember what God said from heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing what? The word. The word of Christ. The word of God. A true disciple will put Christ and his word at the center of his focus. So any religion or any profession of faith or any cult that puts the focus on anyone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ, including God the Holy Spirit. Focus shouldn't be on God the Holy Spirit. The focus should be on Jesus Christ. Anything else is off-center, off-kilter, something is wrong. All right, so Jesus spoke about an outer proof of true discipleship, which is one's continuance in the word of the Lord. And then he went on in verse 32 to talk about an inner proof of true discipleship. You know what the inner proof is? You experience true freedom, true emancipation from enslaving sin. He says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has initially, he has his heart and his mind illuminated by the truth. That light bulb goes on. He sees the light. And he, um, he is emancipated, first of all, from the condemnation of sin for all of eternity. 
he, uh, you know, before a person comes to Christ and he tries, he opens up this, this Bible and tries to understand it. I know before I was a, a saved person, I, on several occasions, tried to read it and just couldn't, it just didn't gel for me. I could, it was a closed book. I didn't get it. But after you become a Christian, the light, the light is there, the illumination, and, you, and, you, and you, can, you can learn. And then you see as you receive more and more light and you learn more, this is what disturbs me about new believers if they're not discipled and if they're not learning. It's because, you see, you can really say it's all in three L's, all right? The light, then learning, and if you continue in the Word and keep on learning, line upon line, precept upon precept, you know what happens? more and more light. So light, learning, more light, liberation, light, learning, liberation. The more light you get, the more you're liberated. Liberated from what? Liberated from all kinds of awful things like prejudices, biases, selfishness, envying, bitterness, gossiping, all those pride things and my rights and all that kind of stuff, bickering. You know, as you, as you grow in the Word, you get more and more liberated. It's, it's a beautiful process. So first of all, you're initially liberated from the condemnation of sin for all of eternity. And then in the sanctification process, as you grow more and more like Christ by looking at his word into the mirror of his word, you are progressively freed from the control of sin in your life. And you know when we will receive that greatest burst of light will be at the time of our glorification. When we receive our new glorified bodies, we'll have the greatest burst of light because then we will see truth himself face to face. And we will even be free from the presence of sin. So initially the penalty of sin during this life, we are free from the power of sin over our lives. And one day we'll even be free from the presence of sin. Isn't that great news? It gives me goosebumps up here. Goosebumps. I always... <laughs> New words. I invent my words as I go along. All right. Well, besides freeing the believer from all kinds of dreadful things, like we talked about bitterness, hatred, envy, uh, and worse things like death and judgment and hell, it, and from all kinds of paralyzing fears. Do you know before I was saved, I was, I was a very fearful person. Now, those fears were good fears because they drove me to the Lord. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of my own shadow sometimes, I think. I was, I was really afraid of dying. That was my number one. And I used to have panic attacks, big-time panic attacks, where I'd even wind up in the emergency room. But as you, as you grow in the Word, you're, you're freed from all these kinds of paralyzing fears, where you get to the point where you're not even afraid of death, right? Because, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But so it not only frees us from all those kinds of things, but you know what? It also frees us to serve the Lord. Before we were servants of sin. Now we are free to be servants of the Lord. It says in Luke 1, 74, 75, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Well, now when the Jews heard the Lord Jesus speak about continuing in his word in order to be set free indeed, they ruffled their feathers. They liked ruffling their feathers, didn't they? <laughs> and that, just to, that, the fact that they're ruffling their feathers tells us right away something of their real attitude toward Jesus and continuing in his words. I mean, after all, they didn't even make it through two sentences from him before their pride and their arrogance lifted its ugly head. We see that in their response to, to him. In verse uh, 33, they answered him and said, We be Abraham's seed. Do you hear the pride in that? Their statement about their heritage, their, their descent from Abraham just stinking reeks <laughs> with pride. And we've already learned that they had a big time problem with this kind of pride, this prejudice, pre prejudice pride where they looked down on anyone and everyone who was not a Jew or who wasn't even a male. <laughs> um, 
And they claimed here that they were the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham, who, of course, was one of the godliest men who ever lived. He's called the father of the faith. They felt that his godliness... Abraham's godliness and the the godliness of the other patriarchs who followed Abraham and made their nation of Israel so special to God that that meant they were very special and they were acceptable to God just because of who they were, you know, especially them, because they are the spiritual leaders of the nation. And isn't this the case with many, many people today in churches? It's sad that many people today also proudly think that they are automatically acceptable to God just because they have a good heritage. Oh, my parents are great Christians, or they've always gone to church, and we've always gone to this church, and my grandparents founded this church, or whatever it might be, and um, so they're, they're just looking to their heritage to make them, they think that makes them pleasing and acceptable to God. They think that's going to get them to heaven. Will it? No. We also find arrogance. In addition to pride, we find arrogance and blind um, assumption in their, in their next statement, which was also very, very false. After they said, we be Abraham's seed, they went on and said this tremendous statement. <laughs> and we were never in bondage to any man. Now, that is absolutely ridiculous that they could make that statement. The fact of the matter is that there were not very many years at all in Israel's history when she wasn't in bondage to someone. They were in bondage for years in Egypt, weren't they? They were in bondage during the time of the judges over and over again to the Philistines and some other groups. They were in bondage to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the uh, Greeks. To the Syrians, Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian, not a Greek. I always like to make that crystal clear. Uh, and, And as they were speaking these words, we were never in bondage to any man. The Romans were ruling over them. Yeah, they're such hypocrites because you know what they say later on. When uh, Pilate wanted to put over the cross uh, Jesus, the king of the Jews, what did they say? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Of course they were. In, I mean, they're, they're hypocrites here. Somehow, in their minds, because they had not ever submitted themselves willingly or tamely to any of their oppressor, oppressors, you know, they had never surrendered their wills to any ruler. I think they got so used to doing that, not surrendering their wills to anyone, that they wouldn't even surrender their will to the Son of God when he came into their presence. But because of this, because they never surrendered their wills, they assumed that they imagined that they were free. It was the boast the brag of deluded men who were full of national and spiritual pride. And do we find people like this today? People who forcefully will deny that their own wills are in any way whatsoever enslaved by sin. You know, people today who say, how do you say ye shall be set free? Of course I'm free. I'm free. I'm free as a bird. I'm free to do whatever I want. You know, um, uh, nobody can tell me what to do. And, you know, in saying those things, they're really, they don't see that they're really not free at all because they're in bondage to their own pride. Who's going to tell me what to do? They're in in bondage to their own selfishness. They're in bondage to their own self-will. Now, by that question that they asked, how sayest thou ye shall be made free? Aren't they already Showing that they are not abiding, that they are not continuing in the word of Jesus Christ. Just like he said, if you continue in my word, they're showing that they're not continuing. Because if they believed that he was who he said he was, they wouldn't question his word. But here they're questioning his word. They were still without understanding that the Lord was speaking to them here of their spiritual condition, their bondage to sin. So because they didn't get it, he went on to make that clear to them. He said... Um, Verily, verily, of a truth of a truth, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. They were not only not free politically or physically, 
But more importantly, they were not free spiritually. You see, no matter how much they might try not to sin, they couldn't stop sinning. Even though they made up all their little rules and regulations and tried not to do this and tried not to do that and wouldn't walk so far on the Sabbath day and all those little things, the truth of the matter was they were still servants to sin. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't stop sinning. And their pride and their arrogance and their spiritual blindness to the Son of God and their stubbornness and their hypocrisy and their desire to kill him, as we read in verse 37, prove this that they were in bondage to their sin. And just like these Jews, the natural man, the unsaved person, has deceived himself into thinking that he is his own boss, that he's under the bondage of nobody. He doesn't see himself as a fallen creature. He doesn't see himself completely under the dominion of sin, as a servant to sin, a slave to his own passions and his own lusts. Uh, you know, many people, a certain time of day comes and they have to have a pill. A certain time of day comes and they have to have a drink. Or a certain time of day comes and they have to have whatever, right? They're proving that they're a slave to their own passions and lusts. He does not, the natural man does not see himself as having been deceived by Satan. Or as the child of Satan, as we'll get into, who is the prince of this world. He doesn't believe that the only truth that only the truth of God can emancipate him because he doesn't acknowledge his own sin. It's kind of like I was trying to picture it. It's, um, it's like a person who's in jail, okay? And Jesus comes to that person. He's in jail. You know, the bars are closed and, the, and the, 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 lock, the padlock is on the jail cell. And the person's sitting in there, and Jesus comes and says, I have the key. I can open your jail cell and let you free. And the person inside the prison says, What are you talking about? I'm not in bondage. <laughs> That's what it's like. That's exactly what it's like. Uh, telling a person that he is a slave to sin angers him. And if you don't believe me, just go out there into the world and tell the average man or woman or young person on the street or in Walmart, <laughs> tell them that there is no good in him and that he is the slave of sin, and that he is the child of Satan, the captive of Satan, just see what his reaction is going to be. It's going to be the same as their reaction here. Unless that person is under the convicting work of God the Holy Spirit, his reaction is going to be very much like the reaction of these Jews. He's going to be argumentative. His, he's going to ruffle his feathers. He's um, going to be like a porcupine. <laughs> or a skunk, <laughs> and he's going to be proud, he's going to be full of denial, and even hatred toward the messenger, you, if you're the one giving the message. Telling those who continue in sin that they are the servants of sin and that those who follow Christ and continue in his word are the ones who are free indeed <laughs> runs contrary to the way that the world thinks. The world thinks that it is you and I. The world thinks that it is the Christian who is in bondage. They think that we are the ones who have had to forego all of our freedoms. They think that we're in bondage to all kinds of do's and don'ts that restrict our freedom. The natural man thinks that he is the one who can do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't see that his love of self, his love of the world, he doesn't see that his passions for whatever, sex or drugs or, or alcohol or his cravings for pleasure and excitement and gambling and gluttony and his love of money and his love of power, his drive to be somebody in this world, his uh, drive to always be winner, you know, competition, I've always got to be the winner. He doesn't see that all those things are tyrants that hold him in spiritual bondage and keep him from experiencing the real joy of having freedom in Christ. True freedom, I hope you've experienced, true freedom is freedom from guilt and sin and knowing that you have been forgiven. Fully pardoned, justified, and forgiven, it is the Christian alone who can look forward to the day of judgment even. When we stand before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ and say, Who shall lay anything to our charge? Nobody, because I've been covered by the blood. I'm washed and clean. 
been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only the Christian is the one who is free to be able to look death right in the face and say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? You see, only the Christian is no longer under the dominion of sin. Death cannot stop us. The grave is not our end. Because we're set free, and we're set free for all of eternity. You know, without this freedom, without the freedom of Jesus Christ, now I love two freedoms, and I've got them represented on my necklace. Two freedoms. I love the freedom that we have in this country to do what we're doing right now, and that's, that's represented by my son's wings he got me because he's serving our, you know, he's, he's, he's one of those that flies so that, uh, they, what do they say, it's the sound of freedom. Some people complain about the sound his plane makes, but it's the sound of freedom. And I, I love our country, and I praise the Lord for living in a free country. I'm afraid we're losing some of those freedoms. But the other freedom that's even more important to me is the one that I've got those little necklaces born again, that I've been set free by Jesus Christ. You know, all the other freedoms apart from freedom in Christ are worthless. All this stuff you hear on the news about freedom, you know, freedom of speech, which is just getting absolutely out of hand, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, political freedom, commercial freedom, all of those free. You know, if I didn't really have true freedom in Jesus Christ, I don't care about freedom of speech because I wouldn't have anything worth saying. I wouldn't have anything worth writing about. So who cares about freedom of, of, of uh, speech and freedom of the press? None of those, in a hundred years, what are any of those freedoms going to mean? Silch. I would care less in a hundred years from now if I had freedom of uh, commercial rights to trade and buy and trade. Or <laughs> the only thing that's going to matter a hundred years from now is my freedom in Christ. Well, Jesus went on in verse 35 to say, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. The difference between freedom and bondage is a matter, this is what he's trying to tell them here, it's a matter of whether one is a servant or a son. Now, a serv the servant might live in the house, the master's house, but he is not a member of the family. He does not have a permanent standing in the master's house. His future is un unclear. He doesn't know. I mean, he could be sold to another. He, he doesn't know. His future isn't guaranteed. And that's precisely how it is with those who are the servants of sin. However, in contrast to the servant is the son. Jesus here, of course, is talking about himself as the son. He says, it's the son who abideth forever. You know what he's really saying there? He's actually answering their question from a little while ago when they asked, who art thou? He's saying, I'm the son that abideth forever in the house, the house of God. He's saying he is the eternal one. As the son, his place in the family of God is permanent. These Jews had just claimed to be the seed of Abraham. And of course, by that claim, they were implying we're the seed of Abraham. So we abideth in the house forever just because of our heritage, just because he was our forefather. But Jesus wanted to un them to understand that the flesh profiteth nothing. I don't care who your parents were and your grandparents. Oh, I mean, I do. I'm not indifferent to who your parents are, but it, it, that's basically what he's saying to them. At, just because they were the natural offspring, the seed of Abraham, did not mean that they were the spiritual children of Abraham. If they were true spiritual children of Abraham... They would do what? The works of Abraham, he tells us in verse 39. But they could not do the works of uh, faith. They couldn't do the works of faith like Abraham because they were yet the servants of sin. They were not, they were still slaves. They were not permanent members of the house. However, there is a way that a slave can become a member of the house. You know how that way is? The son of the master can free the slave and ask the father to adopt the slave into his household. And if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. It says in Galatians 4, 
God sent forth his son to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, we have the awesome privilege, if you are a true child of the king, of not only calling him father, but of even crawling onto his lap and saying, Daddy, Abba, calling him Abba, Father. Well, then Jesus admitted to these Jews in verse 37 that, yes, they were the seed of Abraham. They were Abraham's seed as far as their physical descent was concerned. But the fact that they were related to Abraham by the bloodline made their hatred of him, the son of the master, and made their hatred all the worse if they were the descendants of Abraham, right? He said, but ye seek to kill me. Why? Because my word hath no place in you. We see they weren't really true believers. The word wasn't continuing in them at all. My word hath no place in you. And the Greek word for no place means no entrance. That's interesting. They were stony ground hearers. And the word couldn't penetrate into their hearts to take root. They did not really want the Lord's words to enter into their hearts because they didn't want to change they didn't want to change. They liked the, the way things were. They liked the status quo. They liked being the big mucky mucks of Israel at that time, didn't they? They didn't want to change. And in this, these Jews were showing how different they really were from Abraham. Was Abraham willing to change? Yes, absolutely. There he was minding his own P's and Q's down in Ur of the Chaldees, and God spoke to him one day and said, get thee up, get thee out. <laughs> leave not only Ur, but leave your... Leave your um, kindred and leave your father. Leave your father's house. He was willing to change. So they're showing, and he was the friend of God. It actually says that Abraham was God's friend. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to have written about you, that you were God's friend? Abraham was a friend of God, and they were the enemies of God, which is proven by their desire to kill his son. Abraham fellowshiped with God. If you life is a series of tests. Some he failed, some he passed, most he passed. But uh, he fellowshiped with God. When God came to him, when Jesus Christ came to him, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ with two angels, Abraham ran out to serve him. He fellowshiped with God in love. These guys just wanted to kill him. They didn't care about fellowshipping with him. So, and Abraham's testing did begin when he was asked to be willing to give up his father, leave his father's house, and his testing uh, peaked. It reached its peak when he was asked to give up his son. Genesis chapter 22. So he proved, Abraham proved willing to stake everything on his faith in God, but not these guys. In or, so in order to further expose the unbelief of these Jews, the Lord said, <clears throat> and this is in verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. It's interesting that the word with that I have seen with my father is the Greek word para, P-A-R-A. And it means, uh, it means at the side of. He said, I speak what I have seen at the side of my father. And ye do that which ye have seen at the side of your father. Here, what is he doing? He's deliberately contrasting his father with their father and his words with their works. Now, since Jesus didn't come right out at this point yet and say that their father was the devil, he'll tell them that in a minute, but uh, he didn't tell them yet, so they seem to miss his point. And they come back at him by saying, our father, our father, Abraham is our father. That's in verse 39. Um, but this claim, Jesus clearly denied because he said, if ye were Abraham's children, not seed, but if ye were Abraham's children, spiritual children, ye would do the works of Abraham. What are the works of Abraham? Works of faith. In other words, they're hypocrites. They have all the words. You know what a hypocrite is? Somebody who says something, but does something else. They had all the right work, words, but their works didn't show. Their words. What does Sammy Fry always say? And, 
<laughs> they weren't walking their talk. And he goes on, he says, but now ye see, seek to kill me. Not only were they hypocrites, but they were homicidal i mean they wanted to kill him they wanted to commit homicide he says you want to kill me a man and he by the way he says that four times he predicts their desire to kill him four times in this sermon he says uh you desire to kill me a man that hath told you the truth which i have now before he said that he had seen at the side of god and now he here he says which i have heard of god not only have i seen things from the father because i was with him but i've heard of god you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. He did not deny, if you notice, he didn't deny that they were the seed of Ab- Abraham, but he does definitely deny that they are the children of Abraham. Romans 4.11 said, says that Abraham is the father only of them that believe. Now, the one whose deeds they were doing, he was their real spiritual father. And what they really needed was to be emancipated. They needed to be set free from his influence over them. And who is the his I'm talking about? Satan. All right, so let's look at emancipation from Satan, verses 41 to 47. All right, he said, ye do your deeds, the deeds of your father. And then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. In other words, he doesn't speak for God, does he? Because God cannot lie. When Satan speaks, he speaks of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. The Jews apparently began to understand that, well, especially after all this, that uh, Jesus was accusing them of being children of the devil. And I'm looking initially at the first few verses there, verses 41. They ha- he hasn't said it yet. He doesn't say it until verse 44. So they're beginning to understand what he's getting at. <clears throat> and they felt the sting of his words. So what did they do? They assault him. They come back at him. They assault his parentage by saying, we be not born of fornication. What are they implying? That he was. That he was born of fornication. And then they say, we have one father, even God. That's kind of contrary to what they said in verse 39, isn't it? We have one father, God. They had just said Abraham was their father. I'd say that's two fathers. <laughs> they say, have one father. They, in effect, they were saying, well, you might attack our parentage and say that we're not the children of Abraham, but we were not born of, of fornication. Now, in your books, you'll learn that there's also some significance between Isaac and Ishmael. Here, but I'm not going to get into that. I'll leave you, you know, that for you to read about. But um, isn't it commonly known, Jesus, that your mother was pregnant with you before she was really married? That's what they're saying here. But again, remember back in eight nineteen. Look back at verse nineteen. Last time they were being sarcastic about his parentage, and they said, "Where is thy father?" And he didn't. He didn't really give them the the honor of answering that question. He does the same thing here. Last time when they said, "Where is your father?" What did he say in verse nineteen? He said, "Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also." Now when they say, "We be not born of fornication," how does he answer them? Sort of the same. He says, uh, uh, what verse is it? 32, what? 
42. He's after they said that we be not born of fornication. He answers them like that. He says, if God were your father, ye would love me. Same kind of answer there. Um, he tells them that if God was their father, they would love him. And this is, this is basically what Jesus is saying. He's saying here in verse 42 that he, <clears throat> excuse me, he proceedeth forth and came from God. That is, and he says this over and over and over and over and over again, he tells them where he came from. Because he really knows where he came from. You know what true freedom is? Knowing where you came from and knowing where you're going. And knowing why you're here. All right, so he tells them he knows where he came from. And he came, that's from the spiritual world and the dimension of heaven itself. Any man who is truly of God will love and welcome him. Not reject and oppose him. The man who wants nothing to do with Jesus is not of the family of God. He is not a child of God. He's a child of some other father other than the father of Jesus. And another fact that the Lord brought up in uh, verse 43, uh, he says that no man could possibly be of God who does not understand his speech. The teachings of Jesus Christ. He says, why do ye not understand my speech? It's like he's talking to kindergartners here. He says the same thing over and over again, and they just don't get it. Why don't you understand? It's because ye cannot hear my word. It's because of your stubborn will. You can't hear my word. And he says, why do you not? The the man who cannot possibly be of God does not only not understand the speech of God, but he does not hear the word of Christ because his heart isn't open to it. Now, without any more attempt at all to try to soften his words and get them to see what he's saying. You know, it's interesting to me that he has to just really... Give it to these guys. He doesn't do this with those who know they're in jail, like the adulterous woman. He, he didn't lead the adulterous woman or the woman at the well to himself by saying, you're a daughter of Satan, because they knew they were in bondage. So he could be gentle with them, because they wanted to get out of prison. These guys don't admit they're in prison, so he's got to really punch it to them. He says... Okay, you haven't got it, guys. Ye are of your father, the devil. Do you know why he said that? Some people say, oh, that's so harsh. How could he say that? That's just not loving. He said it because he loved these men. And he truly wanted them to come to him. He had no choice but to tell them the sober and startling truth. If you truly love someone, what are you going to give them? A lie? Or are you going to give them the truth? He knew that the only way for them to ever get saved was for them to really, really understand their desperate need. They needed to know the truth. Well, so far then, he has given the following reasons for why these religious leaders were children of the devil, not children of, of a God. First of all, they rejected truth. Second, they tried to kill Jesus, or they wanted to kill Jesus. They would succeed eventually, but... Um, for speaking the truth. They did not love him, which meant they didn't love God, and they couldn't understand his words. Satan's children may be very knowledgeable and very well versed in scripture and in their, all their religious traditions, but they have no real genuine understanding of the words of God. He says, the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, not of God. For he is a liar and the father of it. Here, Jesus unveils Satan, the devil, as only he can do. You know that Jesus created all the angels. He is the creator. Satan is a creation of Jesus Christ. They're not brothers, as Mormons teach. Jesus is the creator. Satan is a fallen angel. He unveils Satan here as only he can do. And notice he doesn't speak of him as merely some power or the force, you know, some force of evil. He makes it clear that Satan is a distinct personality. He was he. He says he, not it. He was a murderer 
right? A liar. He's the father of murder, and he's the father of lies. What was his first lie? Well, I guess to himself when he said, I will be like God, but, but his, other, his other lie to mankind was, ye shall not surely die. Lie. Full of lies. There's no truth in him. And he was a murderer. Satan is responsible for every man's death, all the way from Adam back and forward. <laughs> he, he, he caused death. He's the, he's the murderer. Not only spiritual death, but it just, uh, Cain was a child of Satan. It even tells us in 1 John 3, 2 and um, 3.12. Cain was the first physical murderer. So he's, he's, the, he's the father of all murder and the father of all lies. If the religious rulers were the true children of God, they would share God's nature. But their nature gave evidence that they were the children of someone else, not God. They were the children of Satan because they lied about Jesus. Remember it says that they believed him? They believed him. They saw the light. They had a moment of truth. They knew he was who he said he was. They knew that. But they didn't want to live with that. They didn't want to surrender to that. So everything else they say is a lie. They're liars. They, they said he was a liar. They're the liars. And they wanted to murder him. So they're giving evidence of who their real father is. Because he told them the truth, they hated him. Don't be amazed if you go out in there, there in the world and when you tell people the truth, they hate you. I have a sister like that. She hates me. She has nothing, wants nothing to do with me because I've told her the truth. He said in the last verses of this section, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not, which of you convinceth me of sin? Okay. Which one? Do they say anything? Can they find any sin to convince him of? Not convict me, because they would like to say, oh, you're a Sabbath breaker. But they can't, he, can't, he can convince them otherwise in that, of that, as he's already done. And they, the only other thing they can convict him of is being blasphemous, but they can't convince him of that sin because he isn't. He is exactly who he says he is. He says, which of you convinces me of sin? And they're silent. Because there's nothing they could convince him of. There's nothing, really, that they knew. They, isn't that amazing? Not one, we talked about this last week, not one little flaw in his person or in his actions that they could convict, convince him of or convict him of, really. And all they can do, we'll see this next time, is all they can do in response to this is throw names at him. <laughs> you're, you're a Samaritan. You have, you're a, you have a devil. That's all they can do. And he says, we're going to close with this. He says, and if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not. Why? Because ye are not of God. All right. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to determine in your own heart if you're a child of God. I'm going to read you just some of the Lord's words from this sermon that we have been looking at. You hear his words, and if you really hear his words, you'll know that you are truly a child of God. If you hear them and you believe them, and they're powerful when we put them all together. Just listen to some of these truths he has said during this sermon. My doctrine is his that sent me. I am not come of myself, but from the Father who is true. I know him because I am from him. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Though I bear record of myself... Yet my record is true. I know where I came from and where I'm going. My judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father who sent me. The Father who sent me bears witness of me. If ye had known me, ye would have known my Father also. Ye shall die in your sins. I am from above. I am not of this world. Ye shall die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. 
He who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things I have heard of him. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak. He that sent me is with me. I do always those things that please him. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I speak that which I have seen with my Father. Ye seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. I proceed forth and came from God. He sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. If I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's word. Father, how powerful your word is. May the word of Christ dwell in each one of us richly. May the word of God be our dwelling place that we may know ever increasingly the truth that alone can emancipate us from sin and from Satan. Lord Jesus, I hope everyone in here truly has heard your word. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.